So please turn with me to Mark 9:38 through 41. That is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God in his word this morning, Mark 9:38 through 41. Well, we've already uh, Will's already mentioned it a little bit and we've talked about it. It's our theme unity to great gospel realities that God has granted us to to foundational doctrines of our Christian faith is the unity and the purity of the church. And we will, over the next two weeks, uh, be exploring these realities. But the church, the church's unity and the church's purity is blood-bought, just as the title of this sermon says. So these are valuable, valuable realities that were purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And today we will be focusing on the church's unity. When we think of the idea of unity, we can often think of perhaps team sports, right? Uh, For example, no matter what team sport you are playing, if one player gets penalized, that one player isn't the only one who receives the consequences of the penalty. No, the entire team gets penalized, right? Because there's a unity of identity. Likewise, if one team scores the winning goal, that one player does not get that victory alone. The entire team gets the victory. I remember uh, one year, uh, my college football season, it, it came down to the last minute Last second field goal, we got lined up, snap, kick, made the field goal, won the game. But our kicker wasn't the only one who won that game. The entire team won the game. Unity of identity. But also, what was happening there? If, if that kicker, if our kicker had tried to make that field goal on his own, it would have been impossible. No, there had to be someone to snap the ball, someone to hold the ball, others to block. If they aren't there then he would have never made the kick. The ball wouldn't even got to him. So there was a unity, not only in our identity as a team, but there was a unity in our work together, right? Our work was unified. So we're going to see these realities, the unity of our identity and the unity of our work today in this passage. Our unity of identity as Christians and our unity in our gospel work is a blood-bought reality. And and hopefully we will see that clearly today. So, this is a fitting place for Mark uh, to, uh, for a fitting place for Mark to begin to teach us about Christian unity because we've just seen Christian unity threatened in some way, if we think back to last week, right? Uh, Jesus has just had to correct the disciples' selfish ambitions and correct their notions of what greatness looks like, right? They were were vying for position, seeking to separate themselves from the Christian pack, so to speak. And Jesus had to come in and say, no, this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. It's not about who you are or what you do. It's about who you know. Jesus would become the least of all and the servant of all on the cross so that his people could know the greatness of God. 
Jesus is the greatest among men. Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God, alone saves. And in Mark, we've seen he will save through serving and suffering. And the call is to follow him. So this gospel reality that salvation is found in the person of of Jesus and his gospel work alone, it, it defines Christian identity and unites Christians across all centuries, all time, all circumstance. Right? So the question for us then shifts today from who is the greatest, which we asked last week, to do you know the one who is the greatest? Do you know Jesus? So in light of of this question of unity, we are about to see in our passage this morning that the, the ultimate question regarding unity is not, are you with us? Rather, the question is, is really this, are you with Jesus? That's the question. Jesus unites all Christians everywhere in their gospel identity and in their gospel work because of what he did on the cross. Look with me at Mark nine thirty-eight through 41. Follow along as I read. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So four verses. We'll consider this passage in two parts. First, verse 38, we will see the situation. It's a situation of separation, if you will. Divided disciples. And then in verses 39 through 41, we'll see the response, Jesus' response to this situation. True unity is in Christ. True unity in Christ. Verses 39 through 41. The main idea, as our theme says, is, is we are united in Christ. And we'll break that out and see, as we've alluded to, Christians are united with Christ. Therefore, Christians are united with each other. And Christians are thus united in their common gospel work. So look with me at verse 38, the situation of separation. Divided disciples. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following. So at a glance, Mark 9.38 is outlining this situation. John makes known to Jesus, Hey, we, we, we found this guy. He is, he's an unknown exorcist casting out demons in Jesus' name. And we tried to stop him. The reasoning is that the individual was not following them. So you can't help but wonder if this is is a little bit of a confession type situation from John. I mean, if if this order of events is chronological, then, then John has just heard Jesus teach them about what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. And perhaps he's second guessing his motives from this past situation. Well, at the very least, the, the theme is certainly carrying through. There is no room for superiority complexes in the kingdom of God, which seems to be a little bit of the case here. Let's look a little bit more closely at this situation in this division. We'll make a few observations here. First observation uh, in verse 38, 
John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Let's, let's stop right there. So the first observation is it seems like this unknown exorcist is not just trying to cast out demons. He's successful at it, right? That seems to be what's, what's going on here. He, he's not just trying to cast out demons and failing. No, he's actually he's doing it. That's important, so more on that in a minute. Second observation, we're just looking at the obvious here. The disciples, seeing this unknown exorcist doing and succeeding in his work, take it upon themselves to try and stop him. So the idea here in the language actually actually communicates this, this idea of forbidding, preventing. They're trying to forbid and prevent. This gives the idea that they perceive themselves as an authority in this situation, It is our job to stop this guy. There's an idea of authority here. So just a note of irony. It's hard to miss. And if uh, you remember anything from a few weeks ago, many commentators pointed out, what has had the disciples just failed to do? They just failed at casting out a demon, remember? And here, John reflects on an unknown exorcist doing what the disciples themselves could not do. And not only that, he says, we're trying to stop him. So not only could they, could they not shut down demonic forces, but they sought to shut down the guy who was shutting down demonic forces. It's pretty ironic when you think about it. What's this man's secret? How can he do this when, when the only people we've seen so far doing this are Jesus and his disciples? And the disciples who most recently couldn't do it. Well, how is the man doing it? What's the defining feature of the way this man is doing it? He's doing it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now, we've already discussed the idea of what it means to, to do something in the name of Jesus uh, and, and earlier in this series, but let's just refresh a little bit. It is not some magical formula. It does not say these words and you get what you want. If he was doing that, he certainly would not be successful. We see that clearly in Acts 19, 13 through 16. Do you remember this little narrative there? Uh, we have some Jewish itinerant exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, Right, and they, and they go and try to cast out a demon from a man by invoking the name of Jesus in some kind of incantation-type magical way without even knowing who he is or knowing him personally. And what happens? Well, here's what happens. But the evil spirit answered these guys, said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The demon-possessed man proceeded to beat them naked until they had to flee. Kind of a comical scene, but you see the, the power at work here. They had no power because they were seeking to just use Jesus' name as some kind of incantation. That's not what's happening here. This man would not be successful if that's what he was trying to do. So what's the difference? Well, it seems this man must be invoking Jesus' name 
as an appeal to the whole person of who Jesus is. His, his character, his compassion, his power, his authority. In short, this man was authentically trusting Jesus to cast out this demon, not himself. This sounds a little bit like faith in Jesus. Who is this guy? Consider his faith. I, I kind of want to be like this guy. Here's a man who doesn't seem to be known in Jesus' circles. The disciples don't even recognize him. Now, we know that from Luke that Jesus has sent out 72 before to go and cast out demons and, and proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. But, but here, this guy isn't recognized. Perhaps it's possible he's been following Jesus every step of the way, but just on the periphery. He's not really known. He's not a face people would recognize. He's not prominent. But here is a man who heard Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom and took hold of Jesus by faith and said, if he is the Messiah who's bringing God's kingdom, then I'm going to go out in faith that he is going to work. And he seemingly went out on his own in that faith and began doing kingdom work simply because he believed in Jesus and his authority. Who is this guy? What faith, huh? And here, he appears to be the real deal, so why stop him? Well, the second half of verse 39 gives us John's reasoning. Here again... We read what could be a glaring indictment. In the second half of verse 39, we read, Because we, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So why do we say this is an indictment? What's wrong with, Jesus, uh, with uh, John's reason here? What sticks out like a sore thumb? What word? Us. He is not with us. What does he not say? As Cody will often have us do an exercise here. What does John not say? He didn't say, he does, he does not say, we tried to stop him, Jesus, because he was not with you. No, he was not with us. Now, certainly, John could be implying Jesus as well, right? Talking about all of us. I mean, that's what the word does. It's a collective plural, right? But more likely, having just witnessed the disciples' inclination towards personal ambition, selfish personal recognition, they do not see this exorcist as a part of their elite circle. He has not been disciple approved. We don't know this guy. Do you know him, Peter? No, I don't know him. We better go stop him. He's not one of the 12. Perhaps it's noteworthy that John is the one speaking here. In fact, this is the only place in Mark where we see words specifically attributed to only John Others note that uh, this sort of response towards this guy seems to fit a little bit with John's personality. So let's just consider his superiority complex, if you will. In Mark 10, 35 through 37, we're going to see James and John come to Jesus. And what do they say to Jesus? We want you to grant whatever we ask of you. Not, not the best start so far. And what, what do they ask? Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. What else do we know about John? Well, Luke 9.54 tells us that both James and John ask Jesus if they can call fire to fall down from heaven upon a Samaritan village because they 
ignored and rejected Jesus. Remember the nickname of James and John that Jesus gave them, Sons of Thunder, right? You might be kind of seeing where a little bit of this, this nickname came from. They have a, perhaps a hair trigger. It doesn't take much to set them off and try to, try to exercise their own authority, right? But again, perhaps being around Jesus so much in this recent talk of greatness in the kingdom of God has John reflecting a little bit here on his motives. So Jesus will again speak into this situation to shape and mold, and there's something to gain here. Jesus doesn't say to John, or doesn't respond to this situation with, that's just John, that's just his personality, right? That's just who he is, just John. No, Jesus calls John and us, despite our natural dispositions and personalities, to adjust and change and fit according to our faith in him and who he's called us to be. Disposition and personality is not an excuse here for John's actions. Jesus loves him and he loves us too much to, believe, to let us believe that lie. Sin is sin whether we are predisposed to it in certain ways or not. So Jesus responds here. But before that, we see uh, here in John's jealous protectiveness of their authority, something similar to what we just read in our uh, scripture readings this morning, an Old Testament parallel. Numbers eleven twenty four through 30. There, we see God take some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on 70 of the elders so that they can prophesy. They begin proclaiming God, who God is, his promises. But two of the guys didn't get the memo to come to the tent for this, right? And they're out in the camp and begin to prophesy out in the camp. When Joshua catches wind of this, he says, Moses, you must stop them. Trying to guard Moses' authority. And Moses exposes that. He says, would you be jealous for me? No, it would be better for God's people if all were prophets to proclaim who he is. We see a little bit of that fulfillment going on right now in our passage. So it's fitting then that this exorcist is unknown. We asked, who is this man of faith? We don't know. There's only one name alluded to here in this situation. There's only one person whose fame is going out. It's Jesus. Perhaps the disciples need to take a little lesson from Paul, who saw the proclamation of Christ as a worthy end in itself. He said, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether it's from envy and rivalry or selfish ambition, if Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. And Jesus will confirm that this unknown exorcist is authentic, and he will give the disciples a lesson in Christian Unity. Look at Jesus' response in verses 39 through 41. True unity in Christ. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one does a mighty work in my name, and no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is with us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
sort of three parts to Jesus' response here. First, the command. And then we see the reasons for the command. Reason number one and reason number two. So we'll take these in turn. First, the command in verse 39, Jesus said, do not stop him. Pretty simple. Straight to the point. No ifs, ands, or buts. Don't try to stop him. Why? That's where the payoff is. Jesus' reasoning. Why should they not stop this man? First reason. We are united in Christ. That's the big idea. We are united in Christ. Look what Jesus says. He says, do not stop him. For, here's the reason, one, does not, one who does a mighty work in my name will, be able soon, will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In short, Jesus says he's authentic because he is with me. How do we get there? Let's follow the clues. First, consider the words mighty work. This is, this is one word in the original language. It describes, well, a mighty work, power, an act of power. The only other person in Mark that Mark attributes mighty works to is, you guess it, the right answer for any Sunday school question is Jesus. Jesus is the only one in Mark who does mighty works, except for this moment. Here, Jesus says this man is doing specifically a mighty work. That's the first clue. Mighty work that only Jesus has done. Second, in Jesus' name. Now, we've already touched on this. That's the second observation. In Jesus' name. That's how the man is doing these things. Here's a man who seems to have a robust grasp on what God's coming salvation means, and he grabs hold of the person of Christ and trusts that Jesus does this through him. He does it in Jesus' name and believes that Jesus is here to overturn the true enemy, Satan. I wonder where he got this idea to go out and do this. I imagine it's probably from watching very closely what Jesus did, right? He's been watching and learning from his master, perhaps from afar, emulating Jesus in faith. Third and finally, faith in the person of Jesus, the Christ, will equal, will, will equal a true gospel believer. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ will equal gospel belief. That's the third clue here. Jesus notes that this man will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So perhaps a clear translation would be, this man will not be able in a short time to speak evil of me. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, I think it's just, it's a way of Jesus saying this man is a true believer. Now remember, the full picture of how Jesus will save is not yet clear to everyone. Nobody knows how Jesus is actually going to go about doing this, except the disciples who have been told, but even they don't get it. They don't understand what it means that Jesus will die and resurrect. That's how Jesus will save. So Jesus seems to allude to the fact that in a short time, when the the gospel of the kingdom becomes completely filled out, once he has died, resurrected, ascended, sent his Holy Spirit... This man who believed in him by faith before all of that will have an even fuller knowledge of who his Lord is. 
Oh, that's how he was going to do it. This man is with Jesus because he believes in the person of Jesus. That is his Lord. Jesus is his Lord. Jesus is who he follows. And when he sees Jesus Live, die, resurrect, ascend, send his Holy Spirit. He will simply have a fuller picture and confess by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is Lord. We think of 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. This man will not speak evil of Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This man believes that Jesus is Lord, and this man is united to Christ, the person of Christ. Therefore, he is united to the disciples. Jesus says, don't stop this man. He may not be in your immediate circle, but he is with me. He is a gospel believer, and he will believe. And if he is with me, then guess what? He is with you. He is with us. Jesus doubles down on this reality. Verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Again, this is just, this is a proverbial way of saying the same thing. This man is with us. Jesus says, if, if even in general, one who is not against us is for us, how much more then is this man who is going out doing the kingdom work with us? Just to put a bow on his point. So the reality of unity Here, notice, it does not highlight the disciples. It does not highlight the unknown exorcist. Their unity has nothing to do with who they are. It has everything to do with who their faith is in, Jesus. They are united completely, though they are separate in their spatial circles. They are united completely through Jesus. Think of Christian unity in Christ for a second how that applies to us today. This means when, when gospel doctrine is rightly upheld, when biblical truth, the, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, when biblical truth is rightly upheld and affirmed and held onto, denominational affiliation does not undo unity. True unity in Christ extends beyond these things. It speaks against, as Will said earlier, tribalism and factionalism that you see so much in our day. This is not to say that denominations should be done away with. No, denominations are put in place to honor conscience. The scripture, there are certain areas of the Bible that, that, leave, that leave room for liberty in deciding, but there are certain things top-tier theological doctrines that we say, no, every Christian must believe these things. This is what we all agree upon. You cannot deny these things and not be a Christian. But there are second-tier theological issues and even third-tier theological doctrines that Scripture just isn't 100% clear on, and so there's room to have biblical disagreement. And denominations are put in place to honor conscience in that way. The problem is when we decide that our denomination or our specific tribe is the superior one. When our theology becomes an idol, when our faith becomes more about our perceived theological superiority or theological ambivalence, 
rather than about the person, the man, our king, the son of God, Jesus. The reformed world has certainly been guilty of this. And and I'm as reformed as they come. I hold the distinctives of reformed theology closely. I cherish them and we should cherish them. But only insofar as they point us to the person of Jesus Christ who points us to the triune God. Once we divorce our theology from the person of Christ and who God is revealed in Scripture, once we divorce it and make it a hobby horse, it becomes an idol. That's what Christians, that's the temptation. That's the temptation with these things. And the minute, as we said, we divorce these things, it becomes an idol. So Jesus is what unites us even across these denominational lines and differences in practice. So we don't look down our noses at those who might hold different distinctions than us. Should we engage in rigorous theological debate with these that honors one another about these secondary truths? Yeah. If, if Christians are, we're reformed, and the motto is we're ever reforming. We're after the truth of who God is. We're Bereans in that regard, but we do not let our secondary issues, whatever those theological distinctives are, divide us. We are united in Christ, and so we are on the same mission. You've probably heard it put this way, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In everything, charity. Christians are united in Christ, even when they are separate in their ministry, spatially, geographically, convictionally with regard to non-essentials, time-wise circumstance, socioeconomic status, Ethnicity, Christians are united because of the gospel work of Jesus. And Christians are united in the gospel work of Jesus. So Christian unity extends beyond our identity to what we do, our work. This leads to Jesus' second reason for not stopping this man. Look at verse 41. Not only are we united in Christ in our identity, but our work is united in Christ. Verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus gives an example here of two gospel workers, doesn't he? First, of course, we recognize that the one giving a cup of water, that's obvious, that's some work being done. Now, while it's obvious that work is being done, it might not be so obvious that this is actually gospel work. We'll see that in a second. The other gospel worker is not so obvious. Who are they? It's, it's the disciples. Whoever gives you, my disciples, a cup of water because you are mine. Now, these disciples, we know, are certainly doing gospel work. Casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming Jesus. That's gospel work. But unexpectedly, perhaps, Jesus focuses his example on the lowly work of the one giving a cup of water here. Lowly compared to what the disciples would be doing. Why does Jesus focus on this? Well, the answer is in the why the one gives the water. 
Why does the one give a cup of water to the disciples? The reason? Because they belong to Christ. Notably, this is the only time we see Jesus self-identify as the Christ in Mark. Usually he is kept it a secret, right? But, but it makes sense here in this context because we've just seen Peter confess Jesus as Christ. We've just seen the transfiguration, God reveal him as the Son of God. And it seems Jesus leans into this reality for the sake of, his, of reorienting his disciples once again. To bring, them, uh, to, to bring them back to him, the source of their life, the source of authority. So consider the work here. The disciples' work is gospel work, uh, as we've said. It, it, but the only reason it's gospel work is because of who? It's whom they proclaim, Christ. That's what makes it gospel work, because they belong to Christ, and they're working to proclaim his name. Christ is the reason. Likewise, the reason why the person in this example is giving them a cup of water is because they belong to Christ, because they are doing gospel work. This, at the very least, is a good and loving work done for fellow Christians. This act of supporting here in the the image of illustration of giving a cup of water. Think of Galatians 6.10. So then we have an opportunity. uh, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. This is a good work. Giving a cup of water to those who belong to Christ. Likewise, think of John 13.35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a loving work, an act of love. This good works and love done towards one another is how the world sees that we are Jesus' disciples. That's a worthy end in and of itself. This giving a cup of water is an act of love. It's a good work. But there's more. What's the result of this good work of supporting the ones who are going out and proclaiming? Notice the result. Whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So actually, in the original language, this is the part of the text that is emphasized. We read in our ESVs that Jesus says, Amen, truly, or for truly I say to you, at the beginning of verse 41. But actually, it occurs right here in the original language. For truly I say to you, that one will certainly, absolutely, by no means lose his reward. And remember, this is just a formulaic way for Jesus to say, this is God speaking. The parallel is Old Testament prophets saying, thus says the Lord. Well, Jesus doesn't need to say, thus says the Lord, because he is the Lord. Amen, truly I say to you, this one will not lose his reward. That's the emphasis. It's confirmation. The kingdom reward for this act of giving a cup of water in support of those who do gospel work is itself a gospel work. Whether you are a disciple going out and doing or the one who is giving water, you are both doing gospel work. It's our temptation to sometimes set up tears here. What's the defining feature, though? What makes the work worth the reward? It's not the kind of work. 
It's the fact that it is done in the name of Christ. It is done with a view to Christ, that his name would go forward, that salvation in Christ would be advanced. This is a gospel, God-glorifying kingdom work. Even giving a cup of water is imbued with this kind of greatness because it is done in the name of Christ. All gospel works, no matter what form they take, are kingdom works. So gospel work of all kinds is a kingdom work, whether going or doing or staying and supporting. Thus, kind of to sum up a little bit, this gospel unity with our brothers, unity of identity, brothers and sisters in Christ, and the gospel unity of our work was purchased at the greatest price. This is the the defining feature of each Unity of identity and unity of work is one person, Jesus Christ. How do we come about this common unity of identity? It was blood-bought. Because God, through Jesus, did the greatest identity switch of all time. Jesus took your sinfulness and gave us his righteousness. New identity in Christ. That way, the label on all of us who are followers of Jesus says, this one belongs to Christ. New identity at the cross. In the same way, God through Christ has issued us all a blood-bought common work visa. We are all ambassadors of Christ. We are all on mission to bring back our brothers and sisters who are lost, who are a part of this family, who are united to us by identity, to bring them to Christ. This is a gospel work, and we have this gospel work because Jesus did the ultimate gospel work on the cross. We get his identity, and we take part in his work because of what he did at the cross. So let's apply Our unity in Christ, we see it's not negligible, it's not minor, it's essential, it's blood-bought. So how do we apply this? Well, first, know what defines you. We talked about this a little bit with uh, theological doctrines and tears. Know what defines you. Know the essentials of your faith. And then, you can take time, it's a worthy effort to know the issues that are non-essentials. This grows us in the faith, but we as Christians should know the essentials of our faith. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Know what defines you. And then know that those essentials of your faith is what unites you with all other brothers and sisters in Christ, even if y'all might, even if we might disagree elsewhere. Right? That's even one comment, one example for us is that we have two affirmations of faith, right? We have an elder affirmation of faith and we have a member affirmation of faith. And this is just to say, we as, we as a church recognize that we're not going to agree on every little part of doctrine, but we all agree on the essentials. Therefore, we can be in happy unity together, even if we disagree on some non-essential issues. But for the sake of unity in teaching, the elders, we have an elder affirmation of faith that gets a little more detailed. But we see as a church, as a body, we are unified 
by Christ. And that is what holds us together. Unity, even in diversity of the non-essentials. So, second application point, we celebrate this gospel unity. We celebrate it. It's, it's not just, it's just not a, a piece of, uh, a, 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 it's, not, it's not just a side piece of our faith. It is essential to it. We celebrate that unity. And we don't just celebrate it, but we build upon it. We build upon gospel unity. It is a reality. We are unified in Christ. But God has also called us to be a part of his building project. Scripture describes it in this way. God is building a temple, a household of faith. That he will dwell in with his people. And he has invited us to be a part of that building project. How? He's given us gifts. Spiritual gifts that do what? They build up the body. These gifts aren't just for making us feel good and building up ourselves. No, these gifts are actually used to build up the body. We see that visibly. We see unity built up visibly when we physically gather together, when we encourage one another, when we use our gifts to minister to one another. But it is also taking place on a spiritual level, invisible to the human eyes. When we use our gifts to minister to one another, there is actually a building project being done that the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are looking at and saying, what would bring these people together? Christ and God is glorified. God has given us gifts to build upon this unity. He's invited us in to building unity. That's within the body. We should also do this without, without, outside the body because we're unified. Big church, C. Believers should strive to get together with other believers who might not be exactly a part of your common tribe or circle or denomination. But if the gospel is held, is held in truth, if there is biblically affirmed good doctrine, if the essentials are there, then we should strive to work together for the advancement of the kingdom. Build unity across those across those lines. We're tempted to try to guard. That's why you see things, if you've heard of the Gospel Coalition, these are brothers from brothers and sisters from across all denominations, Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, it doesn't matter. They hold the essentials of the faith together and they say, we will strive together for the advancement of the kingdom. We as a as a body, want to find more ways to do that here in Charlotte, the church of a th- the city of a thousand churches, for the sake of the kingdom, unity in Christ. And finally, go and do gospel work. Perhaps more fittingly, from this from our passage, if God does not have you in a season of going, support gospel work, and don't begrudge if God calls you to a season of supporting when you would rather be going. Why? Why don't we begrudge that? Because as we've seen, it's a worthy call. It's a gospel work. If God has called you to support those who go, then support with all your might, financially, materially, relationally, prayerfully. And don't look down on what you're doing because in God's kingdom economy, 
You are a fellow worker of the truth. That's what John says in 3 John 8. The very guy who was having trouble with unity, what does he say here? Therefore, we ought to support people like these, those who are going out for the faith, those who are going out to proclaim the name. And in 3 John, they're actually strangers. We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers of the truth. In God's kingdom economy, when you support those who are in the field doing gospel proclamation, in God's eyes, he sees you right there in the field next to them side by side doing the work as well. You are a fellow worker of the truth. This is a miraculous reality, one at the cross, our unity in Jesus Christ. So gospel unity is blood-bought with the blood of our King. We do all we can to live it out and build upon it, uh, build upon this miraculous reality. We are more closely kin to our brothers and sisters in Christ than we are those in our own family who are not in Christ. This unity is not a byproduct of God's gospel plan. It's at the very heart of it. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In or- so in order that he might be the firstborn among what? Many brothers. One family, united in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is what God has destined us for. So we at DGCC, so thankful God has made us a unified church. We see that so well. Let's build upon this unity more and more and more. Doing gospel work for the sake of the one to whom we belong, Jesus Christ our King. Would you pray with me?